So thank you everybody for coming in again. Um, tonight, we took a little break last week, sorry about that. Um, tonight, we are continuing our shiur on piyut. And I believe last time we learned together, we discussed the Italian influence on the piyut, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, we looked at some of the major Italian paitanim, such as Rabbi Binyamin ben Zerach, Rabbi Elia bar Shemaya, some of the major writers who influenced the Machzor up until this day, and their piyutim had a real effect on later paitanim, as well as the prayer book for many Jewish people for hundreds of years. Tonight, I wanted to cover the French influence on Piyut. And the Paitanim, basically the Paitanim that lived in the area that today we would call France. So just to give a little bit of the background of the Jews of France, it's when it comes to northern France, uh, we have very little information of any Jews residing in northern France, or what we would call today northern France, like Normandy, or or uh, Troyes, or uh, even Blois, Paris, um, so, so many of the areas of northern France where Jews had larger communities later, we have no information, we have no sources that would indicate that any Jews lived in northern France before the year, roughly the year 1000. And this is probably because at the time it was run by Frankish kings, it was, uh, you know, pretty remote to the centers of, of uh, the Jewish, of Jewish life. And the Carolinian kings uh, even when they took over, the Carolinian kings did not, let me just admit Svi here, um, did not initially have many Jews in those regions that we would call today uh, Paris or Normandy or areas like that. Unlike uh, other principalities such as uh, the, Iberian, uh, the principalities in the Iberian Peninsula, which today we call Spain, or uh, Italy, for example, those, those areas had Jews going back to ancient times or to the Dark Ages. But northern France practically had no Jewish presence until the, sec- the beginning of the second millennia. Now, in contrast, in southern France, there was a bit early, we have a bit earlier evidence that there were Jews in southern France. The earliest evidence of this is in the year 689. There's a tombstone in southern France. I believe it was in, uh, where was it found? In Narbonne, I believe, which is written in a mixture of Hebrew and Latin, which clearly is a tombstone for a Jewish person. Now, that's important because what it tells us is that the Jews who were in what we would call southern France today were there because they were on the Roman commercial routes. Many of them were the older Roman commercial routes. And many of those Jews were just doing business along the Mediterranean. It's important to realize that although today one might look at northern and southern France as one homogenous, um, one large landmass and one part of one history, if you lived before the 13th century, southern France and northern France were completely different places. The north, northern France was controlled by the Carolinian kings, the Capi, later the Capetian kings, 
Southern France, however, was was much more closely related to Spain and to Mediterranean countries. They were a collection of baronies and principalities, uh, such as Arles, uh, you had Languedoc, um, I'm trying to remember offhand, <clears throat> Narbonne, <coughs> Marseille, uh, and a few other principalities in the south of, of what we call France today, which were independent from the northern kingdoms. And those areas in southern France were uh, historically magical for the Jewish people. And many of the great, they were very small communities. They had a few hundred people at most. Um, as far as uh, Rabbi Benjamin of Tudela is concerned, he was one of the, one, a person who traveled along the Mediterranean from west to east. And when he passed through southern France, he found a few uh, a few communities with a few hundred people there, but those smallish communities, which clearly were were established by by business people, those smallish communities still housed some really really great scholars. And 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 Benjamin of Tudela was was surprised by how many, uh, by how much devotion to Torah learning those communities uh, contained. And famously, many of the greatest uh, scholars from those areas were people like the Radak, Rabbi David Kimchi, and the entire Kimchi family. You had the Ralbag of Levi ben Gershon, the Meiri, famously, a tremendous scholar of, of, of the Talmud. So it was an extremely productive, uh, productive area. However, despite all that productivity, the, the Jews of southern France uh, <laughs> hightailed it out of there as soon as the Capetian kings took over in the beginning of the, th- I think it was the beginning of the 13th century, I don't remember precisely. But in that time, when, when the lesser friendly kings showed up, the Jews began to, to, to move out and move either westward or eastward. Some went to Italy, some went westward, depending on, on uh, where they ended up. A lot of Jews ended up in Afam, right? The Asti, Fosano, and Moncalvo, the, the areas in Italy, which uh, became their own, contained their own French, French right. <laughs> So the southern French communities, although were fascinating, they came to a quick end, and we don't have many Paitanim from that area, uh, with one exception that we're going to see a little bit later. But that area, despite all its productivity, as far as I know, did not contain a lot of uh, piot activity. Much more of that activity was centered around uh, Torah learning and Gemara learning. However, the north when the yeshivot sprang up in the north of France, was home to some of the greatest uh, scholars that Judaism has ever seen. Obviously, we're all familiar with people like like Rashi, uh, Rabbeinu Tam, um, uh, so many of the Rashbam, so many of the luminaries, uh, the Balei Tosafot and others who, who lived in northern France in the 12th and 11th centuries. These are people that, that we are all today familiar with. And this area had much more poetic activity or poetic creativity. Now, from a stylistic perspective, for the most part, the French piot is stylistically uh, indiscernible and indistinguishable from the German or the Rhineland Paitanim. The, the Rhineland Paitanim, those who lived in the, the, near the Rhine River that we discussed a few weeks ago, and uh, the Paitanum of the Crusades and the Paitanum of the French are by and large uh, adopters of the same style. They both inherited the Italian legacy before them. They both uh, inherited a lot of the, the, the Neo-Italian stuff from the earlier sages, and their, their styles were practically identical. So 
I'm going to move through one, two, three, four personalities tonight who are major, uh, major Paitanim. And, and with that, and with that, we'll conclude the at least 70% of the, of the French Paitanim that, that are important to history. The first was Rebeliyahu Hazakain. Rebeliyahu Hazakain was a famous Baltosafot. He was, he lived in uh, Le Mans, I think that's how you pronounce it, L E. M-A-N-S, uh, Le Mans in France, in northern France. And his father was a, an, another Baltosafot, Rabbeinu Menachem. He had two brothers, Rabbeinu Yukutiel and Yitzchak. He had a, 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 we know a, a bit more about his family. We know his sister's name was Belet, just like the, the daughter of the Rokeach. But by and large, Rebeliyahu Hazakein was, was the most famous of his, the famous member of his family. He himself describes his father as being a very pious person, a very learned person, very holy person, that he would always fast. And one of the things historians point out is, is unique about Rebelio Hazaken is that he is possibly the first person uh, before, I mean, in, in, in before, I would say, Tanaic times to definitely have the name Eliyahu. He's the first Jewish person to be named Eliyahu before, um, uh, since, since the Tanaic times. So, it's it's just an interesting thing. Some some have speculated perhaps his father was more mystically inclined, in, inclined, and therefore he thought you know naming his son Eliyahu would bring the Geula or something like that. But we don't find personalities with the name Eliyahu, according to historians, before Eliyahu Hazakain. So that's just an interesting fact about about his life. Now, much later, at the time of the Marshal, hundreds of years later, there were already many many stories and legends written about Eliyahu Hazakain, but. Not all of them can we track with some accuracy. For example, the Marshal says that he learned by Rashi and that his brother-in-law was a Haigaon. Now that's very confusing because Haigaon was much, much older than him. So they try to reconcile these claims of the Marshal with other approximations, like maybe he married not the, the sister of Haigaon, but maybe he married his niece, right? Like Batachoto or something like that. However, we do know Rebbeleo Zakain was a world traveler. Despite some 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 claiming that he traveled to Bavel and learned there, he himself uh, says that he spent three yomtovs in Eretz Israel. So he clearly saw the world. He was clearly extremely learned in an unusual way for somebody who was living in such in such a place for that time. And his prestige in his time as as a scholar was was huge. And and after him, many of the Balei Tosafot when they mention him, they mention him with, with tremendous reverence. It's not clear why he was called Hazakain, the elder. It could be because uh, he lived between 980 and 1060 at least, so he lived at least till 80, 90 years old. Or it could be because he was the oldest of his brothers. So he, sometimes he signs his own his own poems with the word Hazakain. So it's not clear precisely what the word uh, Hazakain means. Now, despite him writing plenty of Material, as far as we can tell, uh, there there's many claims that he wrote various pirushim and various uh, uh, scholarly materials. None of that is really extant. We don't have much from Rebbeleo Zaken. All we have left from him is really his piyut, and the most famous of all his piyutim is his azharot for Shavuot. Right? Everybody knows that the azharot are a piyut section, a, a set of piyutim that are written for uh, Shavuot, where you list all the mitzvot and mitzvot lo in the Torah. And his uh, Azharot for Shavuot was called Emet Yehegechiki. 
This is mentioned multiple times in the Tosafot throughout Shas. Uh, for example, in Sukkot uh, Memteta Muralif, the Tosafot bring him, and the the, the Balei Tosafot bring him almost like psak when they when they when they cite uh, when they cite the Azharot. Uh, when they cite his Azarot, they cite it as, as a legal proof. Like, oh, and, and Rebbe Hazakim wrote in his Azarot XYZ, that must mean the halacha is that way, or the mitzvah is structured that way. It's an, it's an incredible thing that they had such a reverence for his Azarot. Now, it was said by the French Jews uh, every Shavuot. Today, today, the Ashkenazi Jews don't say this one anymore. I don't remember offhand. I know the Sardim say Ibn Gabirol's. Uh, the Ashkenazim, I don't remember, uh, I'm forgetting exactly which one they say offhand, but it is. it was printed, the Azharot were printed twice. Once it was printed in Varsha in the year 1900, which coincidentally, if you look at the, uh, I think it was Solutsky published this in, 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 uh, in, in Warsaw, I'll share my screen. He says, he says, Bishnat Rabbeinu Eliyahu Bar Menachem. The year is, if you do the Gematria, Rabbeinu Eliyahu Bar Menachem, which is just a, a, an interesting and fascinating thing. And there's two places. So that's the first time it was printed. Uh, Slutsky did it with a with a pirush on the bottom. Let me just share my screen quickly. Uh, you can find this on Hebrew books, and we'll just read this together for a second. So Emet Yehagechi Ki Mishpatei Hashem. Amonai kol pikudei kol basis teva Hashem lekol ekashel nedavot pi lamideni retzena Hashem ishpetecha lamideni. And so the introduction here uh, includes his name Eliyahu Hazaken, uh, I think, or Hazak. This should be Hazaken. All right. And then throughout the Azharot, he goes through the lists of brachot. Now, for a long time, scholars assumed that he was following the list of the Behag. And when he was writing um, when he was writing his his uh, his list of all the mitzvot, he was just following the Sefer Behag of Shimon Kayara, which was a list of brachot before him. And very typically, Mea brachot yom yom right? A person has to say 100 brachot every day. That's the famous sheet of the Behag. And many other examples here where the Behag puts specific mitzvot as mitzvot that the other Rishonim don't agree with. However, later research showed that he was not, in fact, um, copying directly from the Sefer Bahag. Yes, this piyot is based on the Bahag, but in fact, he was writing his piyot constructed off of a paitan that was earlier than him, who was whose name was Rabbi Benyamin Bar Shmuel. Rabbi Benyamin Bar Shmuel was a... Another Paitan who we know very little about. All we know is that he signs his name Paitan. He probably lived in, uh, I think it's called Coutances in France. It's in Normandy. And we, we basically, that, that's all we know about him. He probably came from Coutances and he wrote Piyutim. A few of them are, still exist. But he wrote in Azharot earlier than Venerable Hazakain's. And the way that he bundles his mitzvot and the way that he phrases things is clearly where Rabbi Yehazakin is getting all of his structure from. So it seems that he's just mimicking Rabbi Benjamin Bar Shmuel uh, before him. If anyone is interested, um, let me see if I could pull this up on my screen quickly enough. Um, hmm, this is going to be tricky. But Yitzhak Meisels, who wrote many books on the um, on the Paitanim of 
wrote many books on the Paitanim of um, of Northwestern Europe. He wrote an entire book called Shirat HaMitzvot, just on the Azharot of Rabbi Eliyahu Hazaken. And I can show you here, he also has a pirush, but very nicely what he did was, is that he also added the other uh, piyutim that we know belong to Rabbi Eliyahu Hazaken. So let me just show you here um, how this, this one is a lot more modern, you know, it was done a lot better. As you can see, he has a beautiful pirush on the bottom. I'm going to skip a few. Like uh, here, we here you get a little more clearly. This is a. This was said by the French Jews for a very long time, but he also brings a lot of the piyutim for that Eliyahu Hazaken wrote. That was the minog of the French Jews for a long time, and these are these were found in the machzorim of the French Jews. We have etin tila lekel. This is a rishus for the Seder Havoda. You can still find this in Goldschmidt's, uh, um, what's it called? Uh, Goldschmidt's uh, Machsar for Yom Kippur. Also, his Machsar for Shoshana, you'll find a few. And let me just show a few of them. Okay, so you have here a few of his Selichot. Uh, this one might be a little bit better known. I believe the Ashkenazim say this. I just don't remember where. So, some of these are actually quite interesting. I don't know how much time we have. For example, this one here, this Elokai Atzom Enai Merot Bera, Beoznai Mishmo Adamim, Velibi Milharer Bidavara Avichliotai Melachshava Veda Veavon. This piyot is really, it's not even a, a piyot, it's, it's like a bakasha, that he just wrote a bakasha, he called it bakasha toval koyom, a nice bakasha to write, to, to say every day. So it shows that, it shows that his um, poetic oeuvre was not just kind of kind of poetry, but he also dabbled in other forms of poetry, but this is all we have left from him. These this handful of Putim, which are still said by very few today, and they are known about, but you know they today are not said so much. Now we will find that the next people we will talk about did have an effect, more of an effect on the Sidor. So obviously the French minhag did seep into the Ashkenaz minhag for, um, in many ways, but predominantly over the years, the Ashkenaz uh, psakim and the Ashkenaz halachais, uh, they, they overtook in many ways the, the French minhagim. So even if the Mahsar would print both, the Ashkenaz one always dominated. A good example of this would be Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam and Rabbi Yemin Rashmol, who we just mentioned. So, as I said, Rabbi Yemin Rashmol, we don't know too much about him, but especially because a lot of his his poetry is still in manuscript, and the only person who did any work on him was was a, it was an article by Ezra Fleischer in Kovetz Aliyat. But but Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam was another fascinating figure. He is possibly the brother of Rabbi of Rabbi Binyamin Bar Shmuel because they're both named Bar Shmuel. And there's multiple uh, sources in manuscript which are reason to believe that they were brothers. It's not definite, but this is a suspicion of, of some historians. Now, we can't reconcile the dates. If he was his brother, he might have been the older brother of Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam. Now, Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam, we know, was a contemporary of Rabbi Yosef Hazakin. He lived in the, the early 11th century. And now, stop and think for a second about the name Tov Elam especially anyone here who knows a little French. What does Tov Elam, Elam mean in, in Hebrew? Good lad. 
So Tov Elam, good lad, in French that is Bonfi. So it would be Rabbi Yosef Bonfi, meaning that his last name was the famous French surname um, Bonfi. This is why his last name is not Elam Tov, the way it would be in Hebrew, uh, which would be uh, you know, which would be the proper way to say it in Hebrew, but instead it reverses it into the French, which is Tov Elam. So where that last name comes from is not clear. Nobody really knows uh, precisely where the French last name Bonfi comes from. It's probably just some relic of the language. But some have argued that that the Jews would give the name Tove Lam to anybody whose name was Yosef. And the reason for this is because we know the Brachav Yosef says, Ben Porat Yosef, Ben Porat Alei Ayin. So the... Um, Yosef is called Ben Porat, which is the, the chosen or the, the, the likable son. And therefore, because Yosef was, Yosef HaTzadik is called uh, a Ben, Ben Porat, therefore they call him, they would call anybody who was loved, whose name was Yosef, Tove Lam. Uh, and another, this is very similar to this, this idea that somebody whose name was Ephraim would be called Glib uh, or Gliba. Because Glib means Yakir or Yakar, and we know Haben uh, Yakir Li Ephraim is another, is 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 also the way the pasuk describes Ephraim. So it's possible, not definite, that the early French Jews used these names as the early European Jews used these names as almost like a, a Zev Wolf, right? You know what I mean? So an extra name on top of on top of the existing Hebrew Hebrew names. So many people have not heard of Rabbi Yosef Tovelam. But he was highly respected by the Rabbanim who came after him. Many of the of the of the Chachmei Ashkenaz and the Chachmei Tzarfat spoke of him with a lot of reverence, especially Rabbeinu Tam. When the Rabbeinu Tam, uh, he, he, there's a, there's a letter in Sefer Yashar. I think it's I think it's in in page ninety six in the Rosenthal edition. And this letter from Rabbeinu Tam is complaining is basically a. a it's a scathing letter, letter to another rabbi in France. And Rabbeinu Tam sends this rabbi a letter where he, admonish, he admonishes him for, for poskining certain ways. He says, you clearly are making a mistake and you're clearly instructing people erroneously. You shouldn't have instructed if you didn't know. Like, if you didn't know the answer, just ask. Like, we will tell you. And, <laughs> and then he says... He tells him, like, why do you have to make so much trouble? Uh, it, it appears this rabbi was from Narbonne. And he says, how about, there were so many rabbis who, who, who uh, moved uh, to different locations, and they didn't make any trouble. Like, Rabbi Yosef Tove Lam moved from Narbonne in southern France to Limoges, which is uh, Limoges, I think? I forgot how that's pronounced. Uh, the, 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 the Chinatown, where they make fine china. Um, he moved from there to Anjou, to Limoges, which is in which is in uh, Anjou, and and he never made any problems. Like, he, he, why can't you be like a Yosef Tov Elam who who came into a new community and didn't uh, disrupt everything? So we find just from this simple tshuva from Rabbeinu Tam a glorious piece of information that Yosef Tov Elam grew up in southern France and finally moved north to become the rabbi of the province of Anjou. So that's that's about as much as we know of him. We know that he wrote many, many works, uh, most famously a machzor, right, a, a sitter, almost like the machzor vitri, but unfortunately it was completely lost to time. And although it's quoted here and there, uh, we unfortunately don't have the machzor of Yosef Tov Elam. One snippet of it that uh, I think it was, what's his name? Avram Grossman brings is where he says that we can't say 
think we have to say ve'anu. Um, I, I think that's what he says. Basically, he claims that he claims. Let me pull this up because I'm actually curious to to remind myself exactly what he said. Uh, here we go. He claims that you cannot say ve'anu. Let me find it. Yeah, don't say ve'anu. Rather, say va'nachnu korim. Why? Because we never find the word anu unless the word anu is talking about avelut. Whenever you look at, at anywhere in scripture, if it uses the word anu, it's speaking in a language of avelut. So he says, when we say when you say aleinu, you have to say v'anachnu korimu mishtachavim. He brings the pasuk, anu v'anu v'avelu petchea v'chein anu hadayegim v'avelu. So it's very interesting that, that this machzor existed, but unfortunately it has been lost to time. Now, Let's, let me show you here. His most famous, the most famous of his piyutim, and I'm going to have to share my screen to show it to you, is the piyut he wrote for Shabbat Hagadol. And this is obviously the Shabbat right before, right before Pesach. And this is a didactic piyut, right? It's meant to teach the lay people all the halachot of Pesach before Pesach comes around. Now, if you look here, on the bottom, this is Avram Grossman's book, Chachmei Tzarfat Shonim. He does a direct comparison between the piyut that Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam wrote and the Sefer Bahag, the Sefer Halachot Gedolot. If you look here, Ve'en Vodkin Lo La'or L'chama V'lo, right? So, and in the left side, he takes the poetic uh, the poetic version, En Vodkin Lo La'or L'chama V'lo. Let me just switch the page, if uh, Google will let me. So you see, it's difficult for anybody who's listening to understand what's going on here, but what's going on in the book is that he he places side by side the halachot of the Bahag and the the piyut of Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam. And very similarly to Rabbi Hazakin, Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam was, was, was considered a posek, and Many of his of his statements here in the piyut were taken halachically by, by the Palet Hatosafot. Now, the end piece of this uh, this is a, a fairly long piyut. He doesn't list the entire piyut here. I'm actually not sure where to find it. Um, but well, he brings it. Uh, oh, Bayer brings it in Avodas Israel. Okay, it's actually good to know because I'll look it up later. But if you look at the end of this piyut, this is where it actually gets really interesting. Because this is something a lot of Ashkenazim will recognize from the end of the Haggadah. If you go to the end of the Haggadah, in Ashkenaz Haggadah, what you will find is a, a kind of like a siluk, which goes chasal... Um, sorry, if somebody else here who's Ashkenaz will know this better than I will. Um, yeah, let me let me share my screen. This comes, if in case you were Ashkenazi and you were wondering who wrote this and how this got into the back of your Haggadah, here it is. This is really the end of Yosef Tov Elam's uh, Piyot Elokeh HaRuchot, which was the, 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 the Piyot for um, Shabbat HaGadol. Chasal Sidur Pesach Kihil Chato, Kichol Mishpato V'chukato, Kasher Zachinu L'Sader Oto, Ken Eskel Asoto, Zach Shochen Meona, Komem Kaladat Mimana, Karev Nahel Netechana, Pudu Yim L'Tzion Berina. So this, this um, piyot, this, I'm sorry, this siluk, the this close 
before the piyut was for, which is now in the end of the Ashkenaz Haggadah Shel Pesach, comes from, from Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam. Now, the last thing I should mention. Uh, okay, there's two things I should, two more things I should mention. Number one is I'm going to show you more of his productivity in a second. From from uh, let me stop my share so I can show a different a different screen, but. He is definitely someone who corresponded with Eliel Hazaken because there is a very important tshuva from the Shibole Haleket that we have that we have both that we have mentioned here many times. This is a tshuva where the Shibole Haleket brings all the different opinions from the opinions of the Rishonim regarding whether or not you could say a krova, whether or not you could put piot into Shmona Esrei. In that tshuva, he says that Eliel Hazaken and Yosef Tove Lam. Uh, investigated the matter. He says nechleku, like they argued, but it doesn't, from the words, it, it, he probably means nechkiru, that, that they investigated the matter, and they came to the conclusion that it's a mitzvah, if, a, if, if piyutim are helping people uh, bring their kavana and have better kavana to, to, while they're davening, then it is a mitzvah min hamufchar to, it's an extra mitzvah to say putim even in Shemona Esrei. So this is one of the famous psakim Vervelio Hazaki and Nervios of Tovelam together, which demonstrates that they had a correspondence or that they lived for a time in the same city. So as I promised, there was uh, Rabbi Yosef Tovelam and Rabbi Yemar Bar Shmuel did survive into the Machzorim. And I just want to demonstrate for you shortly here in the Machsar published by Daniel Goldschmidt, which contains a lot of things which not everybody says anymore. Let me just share my screen here. The second day of Rosh Hashanah, the Ashkenaz Minug is not to say, uh, the Minug of Ashkenaz in Poland, is not to say a Kreva in the Chazar Sashas of Musaf. I guess people had enough or whatever, but that's, they don't want to add more Kreivas to, to the Musaf of Chazar Sashas in on Rosh Hashanah. Now, the, the French, however, and the, and the, the Jews of Afam, of, of Asti and, and Fosano and, and Moncalvo, they, who, who retained the French Minhag, continued to say uh, Piyutim and Krovot in the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah on the second day. So the Krova that they say, the, 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 the eight-part um, set of Piyutim, comes from Rabbi Binyamin Bar Shmuel, but the Rishut, the introduction for it, was written by Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam. So if we just look here really quickly, I'm going to skim through it. It begins with with a with a the plea of the Chazan. panim leharim hamim harim. Right? How can I lift my? How can I? How could I, a person, lift my face up to Hashem to ask mercy from our from our Creator? Gavru pishaim nichu neharim. Right, our our uh, sins have overwhelmed, as well as they have flowed like rivers. Our inquities, and even those who are who are uh, pure have been uh, have been withered away or have been uh, drawn away. Uh, of the, the requesting permission, so to speak, from the Kahal and from Hashem, in order to begin piyutim in middle of the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, and then here comes the set of Rabbi Yemen Bar Shmuel, beginning with Agan Hasar Nokeshet Shar. My assumption is most Ashkenazim 
will not recognize any of these, but these are this is quite a properly done cravat. It's very interesting. Uh, there's there's some uh, some nuances that scholars of Piet would know a little bit more about, but he really does structure it properly, like like a classical, in many ways like a classical cravat, uh, which is fascinating to his level, which demonstrates his level of of uh, of education that he was so well versed. Both Rabbi Biyam and Barshmuel and Rabbi Yosef Tovelan, they were so well versed in this in the field of piyut that they were such outstanding scholars who had, were so well rounded that they knew enough to write to to write piyutim of that caliber. It's really really incredible that when you find uh, the Jews of France and the Jews of Germany, that despite being in a relatively remote periphery type location, in uh, in contrast to the Jews of Iraq or the Jews of Spain. Uh, not really much as you sprain, but Iraq and Northern Africa, they still had an incredible amount of knowledge. For uh, the best example of this would be also like uh, Rabbeinu Gershom and and uh, and Rishon Bar Yitzchak and and Rashi and so many others Rabbeinu Tam, who despite being their, um, despite being so far away from the classical centers, still. Uh, incredibly had so much knowledge. Apparently, many of these people were taught by or had visited themselves some of the centers of Torah knowledge. And here's just a, uh, I'm just demonstrating on the screen a summary of all of the uh, krovos which were said by the, by the French, um, by the French Mahsurim. Okay, so let's call it quits there for Rav Yosef Tovelam and possibly his brother Rabbi Yom Mashmuel and Rabbi Leo Hazakein. Now, to finish up, I remember saying that uh, we spoke about Rashi already. Rashi lived in Troyes, and his um, he was not noted as a Python. Rashi is much... We don't really need to speak much about Rashi. Everybody knows enough about Rashi. But Rashi did write seven or seven Piyutim that we have still today. They are compiled into a little mafsar called Piyute Rashi that you can find in Hebrew books. And many of them are interesting in their own right, but they're not original in their own sense. They, they are imitations. They have historical data, but we, we've spoken about this before when we spoke about the, hist- about the history of the Crusades. The one thing I really wanted to recap on was Rabbeinu Tam. And I struggled to find any piyutim from Rabbeinu Tam. And the... It was frustrating because there was a book called Shir Tabinu Tam by Yitzchak Meisels that was published, but it just seems impossible to get your hands on anymore. So what I did find, though, this time was that in the book from... Uh, let, me, let me just pull this up. In the book from... Here we go. The book by Toldo Tapiut Vashira by... Uh, by Avram Haberman, he brings, I think it's only two or three piyutim from Rabbeinu Tam, but that's enough to really demonstrate what it is I want to show you. So, the the reason Rabbeinu Tam is, 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 is more, I'm sorry, is more fun or more interesting is because Rabbeinu Tam's piyut has in it uh, imitations of piyutim written in the Arabic meter. And that's actually fascinating because Yes, the French Jews and the German Jews and the Spanish Jews had more communication than people today realize. But the fact that Rabbeinu Tam was writing in the Arabic slash Spanish Jewish meter is is interesting because it is known to history that Rabbi Avram ibn Ezra had a correspondence with Rabbeinu Tam. When Rabbi Avram ibn Ezra left Spain, 
he traveled around different areas like Italy and France, and he spent some time in France, and it is it is assumed that he met Rabbeinu Tam. Now, Rabbeinu Tam, after this, uh, what's it called? After this meeting, seems to have been trying his hand at Arabic meter. So the first, the, the funny thing is that it's not clear if he was doing it just because he was a genius and he was, you know, exercising his mind at, uh, at another artistic style or, or, or what, for what reason he was doing it. But he played around with, uh, he played around with Arabic meter just to like practice on his, on his own to see like how well he could do it. So I want to show you a correspondence he and, and Avram ibn Ezra had. I hope I could pull this up quickly enough. So let's see. Um, here we go. Let me share my screen. So the Ibn Ezra, let, let's put this here. In one of their letters between Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra and Rabbi Nutam, Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra sent him a teasing poem. He teased them. He said, Who let the Frenchman into the house of, into the house of song or poetry? How could a, how could a, foreign, uh, a, a foreign servant uh, serve in this holy place? And even if the, the song of, of Yaakov Ishtam, right, uh, of Yaakov ben Meir, was, was as sweet as the man, I am the sun and I shall, and, and the, the heat of my sun will melt it. <clears throat> so it's a clever poem written in an Arabic meter. And he's teasing Rabbi Nutam, like, why are you trying to write uh, Arabic-style putim? You have no business doing this. You're not trained like I am. I have decades of experience. Like, you're cute, but please don't do this. So Rabbi Nutam replied to him um, with a very humble response. He says, Avi Ezri, right? He's calling Ibn Ezra, Avi Ezri, right? My father who gives me salvation. Yashivu Sifav, he can take return to his parts. Asher Natani Dido Ben Agafav, because he put his friend in his place. Ani eved la Avraham I am the, the servant to Avraham to be purchased. And I shall bow and kneel to his face. So Rabbi Tam is replying, and this is terrific fun, he's replying with tremendous humility and respect for Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra, but he's doing it following the same, the same poetic meter. He's like playing with him. He's going along with the same meter. And, and when, when Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra received that, he replied with almost an apology. Hanachon el abir am kelviro am, right? The uh, he's calling a benutam. The the he says hanachon el abir the the glor the it would be it would be fit the glorious um uh, the 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 scion of the of the nation of Hashem and their shepherd lashpil rosh b'mechtavel bezui am to uh, to. To, to humble himself before the the the, um, the disgraced one, like why you are Beinu Tam, you the Gadol Adar, don't 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 humble yourself before me. V'chalila lemalach alokim, and it should be chalila that 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 an angel of God asher yikod v'shtachava lebilam that 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 should 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 bow himself before Bilam. He's calling himself Bilam as if he's a wicked person. So this is a terrifically fun exchange between Rabbi Avraham ibn Ezra and Rabbi Tam. Uh, however, uh, we are not done here. I want to show you one last thing. If my screen is still, still being shared, you find here, and Haberman does it correctly. He puts in the Arabic meter, 
right? You have the, the short the short vowel and, and then long. Right? We'll discuss this a little more when we discuss the Spanish the, the Spanish Arabic styles. But here is a piut for for Sukkot, and he's and you see Rabbi Tam is trying to mimic and uh, practice in the Arabic meter. Yigonai, um, yigoni umarchiki. So he's he's trying to to mimic the the Arabic meter in his piyut for Sukkot. So that's that's about as much as I'll cover. I wish we had more from the piyutim of Rabbeinu Tam, but um, and I'm sure he wrote others that were not trying to mimic Arabic poetry. However, this was what I found. I thought it would be terrific fun to just share that. Now the last thing, uh, the last two things I'll talk about very quickly, just a speed round, is the fact that the French. Rishonim were the first to, the French Rishonim were not the first, but were possibly the first, but not the only, to devote themselves considerably to commentary on Piot. And they would write commentary on Piotim earlier than their own, so uh, earlier than themselves. Now, the reason this is important is because it tells you something about their perspective and their association with Piot. While the Spanish uh, and, and the Italians and many others saw piyot as a liturgical function or as a poetic or artistic function, many of the um, many of the uh, of those associations are not uh, halachic. While they saw, the, the French saw piyotim as more than just poetry. They saw it as something to be delved to be delved into and to be studied and to come out with things from. You could you could deduce from it halachos, you could deduce from it midrashim, you could explain things you could you could find taira inside piyutim and they considered it an act of limud taira to study the piyutim of the rabbis before them. So this is a completely different uh, perspective that they had. If you look at the Rambam and Sefer HaMitzvot, in the beginning the Rambam uh, basically expresses his frustration with the other people, the other Rishonim who counted the mitzvot, and most famously the Bahag. The Rambam really doesn't like the Sefer, the Sefer Bal Halachot Gedolot of Rav Shimon Kayara. And based on that, the Rambam also brings those who wrote Azharot, right? Because in those lists, people also count the mitzvot. And the Rambam says, unfortunately, many of those people Mishorim Hayuv Lorabanim. Many of those people were singers, Chazanim. They weren't rabbis. So the Rambam seeks in the Sefer Mitzvot to correct all of the uh, the deficiencies he saw in many of the Azharot. Now, the Rambam's clearly not talking about the Azharot of Rav Sadia Gaon or the Azharot of Rav Eliyahu Hazaken, because those Azharot, which he might have not had access to, were clearly not written to just be songs. They were not Gabirolian Azarot. They were much more, uh, pre- they were much more precise, far more scholarly. So it is possible that all of the Paitanim that the Rambam witnessed in Egypt or in or in Spain or in Morocco, those those Paitanim who wrote Azarot had a different had a different agenda and a different association with Piat. Last, and I promise this is the last thing, is probably the funniest part about the, uh, I, yeah, hands down, the funniest part about the French Paitanim. And that is, if anybody knows a thing or two about the French, is that, at least today in France, you can be cursed out by somebody who is French, but if you don't speak French, it still sounds absolutely lovely. Now, what the French, the unique, there is a unique genre of French piot 
which is called the Shamta, or the, uh, the, the, the Piute Klala. And that is that the French Paitanim had a special genre of poetry, a special genre, a genre of Piut, devoted to cursing out the uh, nations that they didn't like, specifically the Christians. However, there were some manuscripts found with piyutim that were curses on individuals. So this is just a, a genre which the, the German Jews did not have. Uh, honestly, you'll find in the Spanish Paitanim, there are some disgruntled piyutim, which are not curses quite, but they are, uh, you know, shame, sh- uh, shame poems in, in the Spanish uh, poetry. Many of them are, are lambasting their, their enemies, but curses, not as much. I mean, you, f- you find angry Putin, but not so much specifically heaping on cursings after curses after curses. So let me just show you an, an example of this. The att- attribution of this is actually not clear, so don't, uh, don't attribute this to any of the, of the Paitanum we spoke of tonight. I'm just going to share my screen to show you one of these Shamsa uh, Putin. Oh, and I should, uh, l- let me just show you here, for example, this is probably, this is a polemic against Christianity. uh, it it's, it's, gets really, really nasty. And if we, if, we, if we zoom in here a little bit further, Beautifully, some of these curses really actually happened. Uh, you know, the way he speaks about how birds should, should eat their corpses. Um, this, this, this very much happened to the Crusaders. Uh, the, the People's Crusade were murdered by the tens of thousands, and many of these people did uh, become food for the scavengers. So it's interesting that they, they, they would spend their time writing these curse poems, and even more interesting, who precisely they had in mind. You know, you always wonder when you have a, when you have a curse poem, exactly, you know, precisely who, who was this person, that who was this nation, or what, what was the historical event that um, prompted them to write something so uh, so destructive. But just on the flip side of that genre, they also wrote blessing poems. So it's not clear for who they wrote it. Most likely it's usually for the Jewish people or for, or for, or for the locals of a certain principality or, or barony. But you have here this, for example, this blessing poem, of a similar but um, also alphabetical, if you if you pay attention, Aleph Bet Gimel Dalid Hey. This is a on the flip side a blessing poem. So they didn't stop there with the curse poems. They also had blessing poems. So that for the most part covers the that for the most part covers the French influence on Piut. Um, as you can see, some of them affected the Machsar up until today. Uh, some of those poems even reached the Haggadah Shal Pesach. And if anyone's interested in the in some of the history of this, more of the more of the period history, I'd recommend Chachmei Tzafatari Shonim by Avram Grossman. Um, if you want to look up the Azharot of Eliyahu Hazaken, if you've ever learned to Taisus and you were wondering what they were quoting, that's that's available on Hebrew books. It's called Azharot L'Chag HaShavuot. Um, if you want the history, I just happened to have this in my bag. This is uh, the Jews of medieval Western Western Christendom by by Professor Robert uh, Chazen or Chazen probably people call him Professor Chazen. I don't know why, um, but that has a terrific background of of the French Jews and the French Rabbanim. 
and he has he does a lot of work, good work to get the details right and to get the, the zeitgeist very right. And lastly, um, there's a nice summary in Toldo Piyut Vashira from Avramayor Haberman. So, thank you everybody for your attention and endurance. If I pronounced any French towns incorrectly, uh, let me know. And Bezat uh, Hashem next week we'll continue with as much as we can, uh, whether it's I think we're uh, the yamtiv of Rosh Hashanah is encroaching. If we need to do more on Rosh Hashanah or on Slichot, we will. Well, maybe we'll take a little bit of a of a detour before we study the Spanish, uh, the Spanish school of poetry. So thanks everyone again, and we will continue next week.